We are all searching. We're searching for love and peace and satisfaction and meaning. We search by trying hard, doing our best, performing beyond our abilities, and accomplishing our goals. We search by accumulating. We invent cooler things. We build better things. We buy newer things. We search in relationships. We hope marriage will complete us. We hope parenting will provide meaning. We think grandkids will fill our hearts. And often these good things are good, but they don't fully and finally satisfy. Accomplishments increase excitement and adrenaline, but adrenaline wears off. The thrill of the kill comes to an end, and soon we run out of things to pursue that can capture our heart's attention. The money we make is often <laughs> squandered by the next generation, and he who dies with the most toys still dies. So we become masters of the universe. We control the uncontrollable through worry or management or perfectionism or through pretending. But these two don't fully and finally satisfy either. I'm John Jackson, and I'm a Chief Operating Officer for an office furnishings company, and married, have three kids. My wife actually came to me one day and said, I need to see a counselor. And I said, what? And she said, yeah, I need to figure out how to live with you. Control was a, a big piece of my life. I needed to control other people and things and processes in order to feel good. I realized that I really wasn't in control. So much of my life uh, had been about seeking acceptance and so much of what I did was based on winning approval and getting that acceptance. I love what I do in terms of operations, but I also love the fact that the part of me that is creative gets to enjoy that aspect of the business as well. As I grew up, I was really seeking that male connection and wanted to be able to, to have that. My dad really reached out in the way he knew how to reach out to me, and that was largely through the outdoors. He is an outdoorsman, so he loves to hunt and fish, and so at a young age, he would take me in to do all those things. I was really seeking that male connection and wanted to be able to, to have that. And so I sought that in lots of different ways uh, in my life. But largely, I sought it through being perfect. I thought that I would be loved and accepted if I got it right. It felt largely like there was a disconnect between who I was as a person and who I was on the outside. The outside John, the inside John. And as I got older, I realized those two needed to get together, but just didn't have the tools to connect this inside part of me with the outside part of me, to really reconcile those two and to begin the process of gradually peeling off the layers and to allow people to see who is the authentic John. And so that's really my goal, to be the John that God created me to be, which is unique from everyone else, and not have to hide that, but to let that truly be what other people see, which means they're seeing the faults and the flaws and the breakage and the brokenness, as well as the power and the success. 
You know, Bob Dylan had this ability to put into words longings that's connected with generations. Whether it was his longing to find answers, and yet the struggle and honesty of, I'm looking for these kind of answers, but they're always blowing in the wind. I can't quite get them, but I, I think they're out there. It encouraged generations of folks to say, yeah, there must be more to life. Seeing the sky and seeing what's really there and what real meaning and purpose is. And going on that spiritual journey. Yet that last song speaks to what we're looking for. That in a world of five senses, we're longing for love. To be loved by our Creator, to learn how to love our, our, our spouses and our kids and other people. So how do we, in a world where we're, answers are blowing in the wind, how do we connect with that feeling of that song, that experience, when it seems like what we're looking for is blown in the wind? Well, there's a man in the Bible who had the same journey. His name was Solomon. He uses a very similar phrase. He doesn't say the answers are blowing in the wind. He says that trying to find them is like grasping after the wind. He says, listen, I, I went chasing all those answers that were blowing around. I chased it, and I had access to anything and everything to try. I tried it through. I was a master builder. I was an architect. I was an artist. I was a writer. I was the king. I had fame. I had power. And I set about to find the answers to these questions. And here's the struggle I came to. He writes in his journal at Midlife in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, I found that I have this heaven-sized hole inside of me that everything under the sun won't fill up. This heaven-sized hole that doesn't get filled up with under the sun filling. And I'm telling you, I as a multi-multi-millionaire, multi-multi-international diplomat was able to try everything from pleasure to accumulation Trying to find the kind of unconditional love and connection and meaning. And I find that everything under the sun that I tried couldn't fill this uh, beyond the heavens hole in my life. Here's how he writes it in his journal. He says, I had a mission. I'm a driven guy. I'm a type A type of guy. So I decided I was going to set my heart to find answers that other people hadn't. I set my heart to seek and search out wisdom. Maybe education would do it. Concerning all that's done under heaven. I'm going to search anywhere and everywhere. And this became a burdensome task that, you know, God's given all of us, sons of man, to do, by which they may be exercised. How do you find this thing? And I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. I've been there. Every project. And the problem was, all those things that were done under the sun, indeed, they're all vanity. It just sort of was meaningless at the end of the day. It's like grasping after the wind. You can never quite catch it. So in this talk today, we're going to look at some of the conclusions he came to and what didn't work. Some three reasons why all the under the sun stuff doesn't fill up our, our lives. But then also some hints at where he ends up by the end of this journey and finding some of that peace and some of that love in hopes that we can find an an anchor to secure our identity to that is beyond the heavens, that we can find a worth that allows us to enjoy money and enjoy accomplishment and enjoy career and enjoy relationships without being defined by them. First, let's talk about, it's not just Solomon who discovered this idea that we have this, this hole, this heaven-sized hole in our life, but a lot of people have discovered that over time. A lot of philosophers, even atheists, have acknowledged that, that we have a heaven-sized or an eternal size or a spiritual type of hole in our life. There's a French philosopher by the name of Pierre Chardin who says that man is not primarily a physical being trying to have a spiritual experience. 
We are primarily spiritual beings who are in this world having a physical experience. That's profound if that's true, because if we are truly spiritual beings, then it would make sense that the physical aspects of this world that we can things we can touch and see wouldn't fully satisfy the spiritual longings we were designed for. If you're a reader of, uh, of philosophy or of uh, mathematics or physics or you're into science, you probably know Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal was a very brilliant. People know him for the Pascal Wager, but he was the father of modern physics and an inventor and a writer. And he was dialoguing one day on talking to friends who were seeking out answers. As a follower of Jesus, he was trying to describe to them why all of the education and all of the accolades and all of the awards that they all had were good. But they wouldn't fully and finally satisfy. Here's what he said, just describing this journey in his own life. He said, what else does this craving for meaning and this helplessness to find the answers proclaim, but that there was once in man, one time a true happiness of which now all that remains is an empty print and it's just a trace of it. So he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss, this heaven-sized hole, can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. He says, it's as if God designed us with a hole that only he can fill. And if you don't take something heavenly to fill a heaven-sized hole, you try other stuff. And it'll last for a while, but it won't fully and finally satisfy. Solomon's going to get to chapter 3 of his journal and come to that conclusion. He's writing along. He's like, you know, it's as if, it's as if God put eternity into our hearts. We have this eternal piece of us in our hearts that we're trying to satisfy with temporal things. I think it was 1988, Life magazine, they did a study and they asked sort of anybody and everybody what the meaning of life was. A evolutionist scientist by the name of Stephen Gould was reflecting on this unique thing we see in human beings. Though evolutionary evolution teaches that we're all evolved and there is no higher meaning or purpose, he was perplexed that this process of random, meaningless activity that produced man produced a creature that's obsessed with finding meaning and purpose. Isn't that unusual? That a meaningless process would create a creature obsessed with meaning and purpose? Now, his answer to that, I think, is quite honest, if not disturbing. Those are his words, not mine. He says, we are here because one odd group of fishes had a particular fin anatomy that could transform into legs. Because the earth never froze entirely during the Ice Age, because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed to survive by hook or by crook. So we, we may, I acknowledge, we may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. Now this explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. We cannot read the meaning of life passively into the facts of nature. We must construct the answers ourselves from our own wisdom, from our own ethical sense. There's no other way. So he says, hey, I know you want meaning and purpose. There is none out there. Life is what you make of it. But Solomon is saying, okay, so let me tell you, I tried. I got a chance to make of my life any meaning and purpose, and I tried it all. I had 300 wives, 700 concubines, and let me tell you, I had a lot of making love going on. And ultimately, I can never get enough. I built more projects and more buildings, and I had my name on stuff, and I'm telling you, it never 
fully and completely satisfied. I had fame. I had power. I had money. I made silver so popular in my countryside. You could find silver as often as you could find rocks on the land. And it was good stuff. But it didn't fully and finally satisfy. Because Solomon acknowledged that there's a hole in our life. And so here's what the journey that we go on is like. We say, we're early in our career, we say, well, I haven't found it yet, but I am going to find meaning and purpose. So what we do is we just sort of turn up the speed a bit. And we say, okay, well, I'm not there yet, but I am getting filled up with career. I'm going to get my degree soon. Maybe I'll get married and then I'll sort of get myself to a higher level. But then we acknowledge that there's still some instability to us. It's still not quite fully there. There's no substance to this. And so we, we say to ourselves, I just got to go faster. I just need more of this. And so we turn up the volume. We turn up the speed. Oh, that's what I needed. Now I'm going to be filled up. Now I'm going to be satisfied if I could just get more of those awards, more of those accolades, more of that affirmation. If I could just not have that, that house in Indian Hill, I want to have the other house on the West Coast. But ultimately, you achieve your goals, and there's still no substance there. So you say, what if I go a little faster? And so you go a little faster. And now, oh my goodness, well, your health's starting to decline a little bit because you're so committed to career, and your relationships are starting to break a little bit. But oh my goodness, you're achieving levels you've never achieved before. You're doing things you've never done before. And you're like, man, I am there. I am there. And you're moving around, and things are happening. And you're saying to yourself, I'm getting tired. Now I'm getting really tired trying to keep up with this pace. And then you say, all right, I've been doing this for 20 years. I think I've finally made it. And then you try and get some substance. And you, and you realize that no matter how fast you went, no matter how much you did, the problem was the air never filled you up fully. It was temporary. It only worked as you were continuing to go, 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 and walk, walk, walk. And, and then, like Solomon, you get to midlife and you say, turns out there's a big hole in my life. All that stuff I was putting in that was good stuff, it kept falling out the other side. I had this, I don't know what you call it, spiritual hole. I don't, Pascal, I guess, calls it an infinite abyss. But there was something in me that no matter how much I poured in, it wouldn't fully and finally satisfy. And Solomon says, that's what I found. I want to give you three reasons, Solomon says, that stuff under the sun, good stuff, won't ultimately fill a heart that has a big a, eternal hole in it. He said the first reason is because anything you put in that hole in this life is temporary. It's eventually going to just rot away and disappear. He says, vanity of vanities. That's kind of the chorus of his journal, which means meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless. What profit has a man of everything you labor for? All that work and all that time and all that effort. You go, 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 go. But ultimately what you discover, he says, ultimately what you find is that whatever you build, whatever you find is temporary and eventually disappears. Thomas Nagel is a philosopher. He was writing in his short history of philosophy uh, this very thing he was wrestling with. He says, imagine a best-case scenario. You produce a piece of literature that is read for a thousand years. Now, that's a legacy. You're Homer. You're writing the Iliad. You're Gaelic Wars, Caesar. I mean, you've got just a piece of literature that it didn't just make the bestseller list. It wasn't just New York bestseller for a season. This is a thousand years of people reading your literature. He said, even in that best case scenario, that piece of literature and your impact is temporary. Because eventually the solar system's going to cool, it's going to wind down, 
or ultimately collapse and all trace of your efforts will vanish. And honestly, it will not matter if you ever existed and it won't matter that you did exist in life. See, life is supposed to have a point, a part of something larger. It's it's always possible, though, to take anything in this life that you make your number one thing and say, what's the point of that? Well, it's all going to go anyway. What's the point of that? So you can leave it to your kids. But then your kids are going to waste it. Well, what's the point of that? Well, they'll leave it to their kids. What if their kids waste it? What's the point of that? And if all the universe is going to ultimately be destroyed and disappear into oblivion, and none of what we do lives on, and we're not eternal beings that last forever, what's the point of any of it? To which we say, so glad I'm not one of those depressing philosophers. Oh, my goodness. You know what? This is why I don't think about this kind of stuff. I try and just do some business and get some stuff done. And Solomon says, I tried that. But there came a place in my life where I went, wait, that's, that's actually worth thinking about. Everything I'm building and working on, what is the point of it all? Solomon says it really unusually in Ecclesiastes 1. He says, it's like trying to find meaning. It's like wind. And it goes to the south. I got it. It was career. Oh, it's not career. Oh, and it goes to the north. Oh, it's relationships. Oh, And it just... Trying to take these unstable things in life and make them the cornerstone of your life, I just found myself whirling about continually. Whirling about continually. Isn't that exactly what our dancing man looks like? Solomon says, this was me, chasing after the wind, whirling about left and right. And what I found, what I found is that my eye was never satisfied, no matter how much I put in. I even got into culture for a while. It was my ear. was never satisfied with what I heard. I couldn't hear enough music. I couldn't hear enough deals. I couldn't pour enough in. I, and I found there was an instability in my life began to come in. This instability was I'd be happy when things are good. I'd be sad when things were sad. And I was totally unstable. It's like I was whirling about when I tried to build my identity on temporal things that ultimately don't last and don't matter. And all these good things, never would walk by and they'd see my family and say, wow, if I had a family like yours, wow, if I had your career, wow, if I had your job, I'd be happy. And he's like, I got all that stuff. And it's not that it's bad. It just doesn't fully and finally satisfy because temporal things are temporary and they cannot feel an eternal need. Maybe you're familiar with another philosopher. His name is uh, Tolstoy. Tolstoy got to a midpoint of his career. And he actually had a revelation. And his revelation was he decided to look into spiritual matters. He ultimately becomes a follower of Jesus Christ and finds that Jesus Christ offered a meaning and purpose that he'd been longing for. But as he reflected back on it, he, like Solomon, reflects on how long it took him to come to the conclusion that everything else is temporal and doesn't matter. He says, you know, I could give no reasonable meaning to any single action or to my whole life. It only surprised me that I had avoided understanding this from the very beginning. It has been so long known to everyone else. Today or tomorrow, sickness and death will come. In fact, they'd already come to many people I loved. They'll soon come to me. Later on, nothing will remain but stench and worms. Sooner or later, my affairs, whatever they may be, will be forgotten and I will not exist. Then why go on making any effort if it doesn't matter anyway? How can man fail to see this, and how can he go on living? To which again we say, thank goodness I'm not one of those depressing philosophers. But as you accomplish all your goals, you become a depressing philosopher. 
Because all the things that you heard would give you ultimate meaning are good, but they don't give you ultimate meaning. And Solomon would say, because they're temporary. The second reason stuff that's under the sun doesn't fill that beyond the heavens hole is because an eternal hole requires an eternal filling. He says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. Everybody knows me. He knows what I accomplished. I set my heart to seek and search out wisdom concerning all that's under heaven, but not to say what was above the heavens. And what I found that all the works done under the sun could not satisfy that above the heavens need. Indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. And here's the bigger problem. You say, well, at least I'm going to leave it to my kids. Well, that generation's going to die. And another generation is going to come and squander it or lose it. Or The sun rises and the sun goes down. How do you find stuff that really matters? It's like we need to find meaning and purpose from beyond this world. We need to attach ourselves to something that is eternal, that does last, that does matter. Or we need to have that eternal meaning dropped in to this world in its temporalness. That's what he's saying. Many of us have uh, parents who are aging and... Our grandparents, and so one of the struggles that you know, our society is going to be wrestling with and continues to is how do we deal with the problem of aging? And how do we offer care and meaning and purpose? So a guy wrote a book, and it's called Being Mortal. And he studied the depression rates, the death rates, and the suicide rates in nursing homes. And he found one of the problems that occurs in long-term care is human beings are reduced to merely surviving. There's no meaning for the day. There's no purpose for the week. And when you reduce a human being to not having any meaning or purpose, they begin to deteriorate. Something in them gets depressed and, and, and suicidal because, like, I was made for more than just breathing. So he tried an experiment, worked around a lot of building codes. I think it was in New York we did the first experiment. They decided to give every resident a purpose, just to put a little bit of purpose in their life. So they brought in dogs. And so some of the residents, every day's job was to walk the dog. Other residents had a parakeet, and every day they had to feed the parakeet. Other folks, they, they set up a garden there, and every day they had to tend to the garden. They had to weed the garden. They had to use the garden. And just dropping a little bit of meaning inside the nursing home, the meaning wasn't inside the nursing home. They had to bring something from outside the nursing home in to say, you have a purpose. This dog's depending on you. This, this garden's depending on you. And they found amazing results. He, he mentions in his book. The death rate dropped by 20% after a year. Suicide rates went down and depression went down. Why? Simply because folks weren't designed to survive. They were designed for meaning and purpose. And that microcosm of a nursing home speaks to the macro issues for us. We were designed to have a higher meaning than just this world, than just accumulating in this world, that we need an eternal purpose at which we align our life to. And I think that's why Bob Dylan was so popular over the years, is that he had this ability to get people thinking without being religious about that journey, about that reality. But if you, in case you don't know this, uh, Bob Dylan had a Jesus phase. He actually released two Jesus albums, one called Saved, and I can't remember the other one. And so he got very serious about religion back in the 60s. And it did not go over well for his audience. Imagine you show up to a Bob Dylan concert... And instead of hearing blowing in the wind or make you feel my love, you instead start hearing some, you know, I mean, he, he got serious. He sort of become a fundamentalist, some hellfire and brimstone preaching and Jesus coming back and we better sell everything we have. And 
Well, let me just give you a piece of what the San Francisco audiences heard and felt when they went to that Bob Dylan concert. Let's watch. San Francisco is a very strong market for Dylan from the very beginning of his career. Um, some of his most fervent fans probably live in San Francisco, and probably some of the oldest and crustiest, you know, that were back at the Masonic Auditorium in 1964, are still sticking with him here at this point, and they're showing up at the Swarfield Theater. And it's not the guy they expect, it's not the show they expect, it's not the songs they expect. But what I remember essentially was that uh, half the audience would, would do a song, and then half of them would boo, boo, boo. And this went on for like 15 minutes after each song, and I thought, well, that's the strangest thing I've ever seen or heard of in my life. He talked about religion. He preached before I walked out. These things, man, he's the worst. He's bad. You don't sing nothing like you used to. That's it. Whoever was born, they booed because what was being said and what was being presented wasn't you know, it wasn't for them. Because if it had been, they wouldn't have been born. They would have been listening. So wait, here's a ticket. Here, you want the ticket? And the others that were not born, that's who it was for. And they got what they needed to get. Stunned. Everybody was stunned. Including you. Including me. Maybe more than uh, some others. Absolutely stunned. I, I could not believe what I was hearing. It was Dylan singing clearly about Jesus. The gospel message, especially if you knew anything about the gospel, was crystal clear through most of the concert. I paid $26 to go in there and see a show, and uh, I could have went to church to see what I saw, you know? I mean, I don't know. I just, I expected something different. All of us were a little uncomfortable with this kind of exposition of Christian theology in our rock show. Most of us were ex-hippies that had been going to rock shows um, for a number of years and to have this guy who had written so many important fundamental songs in the canon of the music that we were uh, listening to come at us with this gospel thing was a left field shot. I don't think anybody's prepared for it. It's interesting if you've not listened to those albums. What's intriguing to me is that Bob Dylan was able to draw people towards spiritual journeys by speaking about the search for answers, even answers that were blowing in the wind. But when he actually thought he found some answers, it's interesting that he turned people off, that often we're more uh, intrigued by the idea of seeking than we are of the possibility of fulfilling. And if you know Bob Dylan's journey, you know he had two albums uh, sort of following this Jesus path, and then he sort of switched gears and, and went searching after other things after that. And so now I believe he's a... Uh, some version of Judaism he's practicing now. So the question is, if religion, though it's good, doesn't fully and finally satisfy, is there something beyond religion, beyond being a better person that can fully and finally satisfy? Well, it brings us to our third point. One thing that Solomon notes is that one of the things that, that this journey describes to us or tells us is that there's something in us that longs that this heaven-sized hole we have explains why we want the whole world to feel his love. No matter what society, no matter what culture there is, we have a sense that everyone should follow the golden rule. Now, on one hand, we're taught in our sociology class, in our anthropology class, there's no such thing as absolutes, there's no such things as transcendent values. 
So we hear that and we start acknowledge, yes, there's no such thing as absolute values. And I know that we're a postmodern culture. We don't impose our, 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 our morals on other people. I've watched Star Trek for years. It's the prime directive. <laughs> on the other hand, just like two sentences later, we'll say people should treat each other differently. I don't like the way women are treated there. We, we have human rights violations. What's going on there? You just said that any morality is okay, and then two sentences later you said, no, 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 I, I want everyone, I think everyone should, a transcendent value of love outside of the culture you're applying to the situation. And God says the reason all people of all times have some version of the golden rule is because that is a transcendent part of that heaven I put in you that points to the fact that there is a transcendent value, there is a transcendent kingdom, there is another world and a higher purpose. I designed you for it and I put a little piece of it in you so you could taste of it. I was in Africa about two years ago. We came across a little village. And this isn't a photo from it, but it's sort of like what we came to. This is much too nice for uh, the village we came into. But as we came into the village, the man had three huts. And each of the huts were a little bit different. There's sort of a, a bad hut made out of mud and, and dung. There was a nicer hut made out of mud, dung, and some wood. And then there was a little nicer one. As you walked into that African village, I said, hey, what's going on here? Looks like one big commune. He said, oh, this is a family gathering. So oh, tell me about that. He said, well, here in Africa, they practice polygamy. And so the way a man finds his value in Africa, the way the culture gives him meaning is he is valuable based on his number of wives, number of cows, and number of children, but not necessarily in that order. So and as an American, I'm offended uh, on many, many levels that this culture would determine value and that women became a, 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 a equation, something to accumulate, right? So I am now saying, that's not right. That's not loving. That's not... Right, that's not correct. I'm implying that this culture and my culture should represent a, a higher value that transcends culture, that we should love each other. There's an anthropologist um, who she, too, wrestled with the idea that there's no absolute. She believed that fervently, and she came to an African village. She saw the way women were being treated, and she found herself in this, in this challenge within her. Okay, I, I shouldn't impose my values on this culture. That's not right. You should be affirming women, building women up, and not abusing women. That's wrong. And what she came to the conclusion is, where did I get this idea, this transcendent value of love? It's as if I was made, the world was made for some value beyond this world. And she began to really seek based on this cross-cultural experience she had. Solomon says it this way. He says, it's as if we look at this world and we see things that are crooked. But how do you know they're crooked if they've always been made to be this way? But we say, no, no, this is crooked and it needs to be made straight, he says. We need to straighten this out. Compared to what? It's as if inside every one of us is a sense that there is a right way we should act. Or let's take something like death. You say, oh my goodness, this child died. It shouldn't be this way. Why do you think it shouldn't be this way? If atheistic evolution is true, it's always been survival of the fittest. It's always been death and dying and disease. Why would you think innocent people shouldn't suffer? But if what the Bible says is true, then there once was a world, as Pascal says, it has a trace that there was no death and there was no pain and there was innocence and there wasn't unjust suffering. And we're comparing this world with its brokenness to what? 
to a world that once existed and a world that we once hope will return. See, if you think like that, if you ask those questions, you're already thinking like somebody who believes in the Bible. The Bible has a story, and the story resonates with why you want people to be good, why you want meaning, why you want purpose, why evil and suffering is a problem, why you want it to be fixed. You see things in this world that are crooked, that need to be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. So so Solomon says, I commune with my heart to go on this journey. I said, look, I attained greatness. Tried to fill myself up with that. That didn't work. I gained wisdom. I got highly educated. More than all those who were before me in Jerusalem. I had PhDs on top of PhDs. My heart understood great wisdom and knowledge. And I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I tried even the crazy stuff. And I perceived that all of it, every flavor of it, was just grasping for the wind. And then he gives us a hint. Just a hint, because he's got like ten more chapters of struggling before he gets to his main conclusion. But a little hint of what he found. He says, I began to wrestle with this. I discovered that we were made for love. But not the, the, the roller coaster of my kids love me one day, they hate me the next. Not the insecurities of a marriage that go through its seasons of fall and winter. I am made for unconditional love. It does not come from my own actions, because religion, some days I pray well, sometimes I don't. I need someone out there to love me unconditionally and to build my security and my worth on that. And when I do that, it allows me to love my wife without needing her to be my identity. I can love my husband without using him to fulfill my needs because I'm loved by God and I become a source of that love to my kids rather than needing them to make me feel good about myself. And here's how he says it. He says, live joyfully with your wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. So notice he's talking about joy and love. But he says, but it is a vain life. Keep in mind, it's going to be short. But look at the little hint he gives here, which he has given you. In other words, the secret to living joyfully and lovingly is to realize there's a he out there, he, a God, who gave you what you have under the sun for your temporary time of of, of stewardship to use it in life. Realize all your days are vanity, but what you have, this life you have, is a portion in life to align your living, your accumulating, your purposes to the higher purpose He has given you. And in all your labor, align it to what He has done in which you perform under the sun. Now this is really fascinating. Again, if you're into philosophy, and if you're not, I'll try and put it in sort of lower shelf stuff. Most philosophers say, what's the meaning of life? And they say it's an equation. Or if you watch certain movies, the meaning of life is the number nine. Those of you who watch that show, if you don't, don't worry about it. Um, Mystery Science Theater, I think it was. Um, the meaning of life is an equation. It's being a good person. It's trying hard. It's, it, it's, uh, it's philosophy. For the Greeks, it was, it was reason. The Bible says the meaning of life is a person. See how it says he? He. You were designed to be in a relationship with a person who is God. Jesus says it this way. You know what the purpose of life is? To learn to not do stuff for God, but to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And when you learn to love him and be loved by him, you now have a source to love your neighbor as yourself, your enemy as yourself. And so he says you're never going to be satisfied by a number of things you accumulate, a number of things you've done. A number will never satisfy you. You can only be satisfied by a name, he and that name is the God who left heaven and came to earth to dwell among us. So let me show you what that looks like. Both the struggle of it and the application of it. 
how do we really do this? How do we begin this journey if what the Bible says is true? And maybe you're not thinking it is true yet. I just want to show you how it would work if you're thinking about it. Most of us find our identity or our worth based on a number. So for those of you over here, I'll show you a little picture here and those over here. So we have a number. And we say, I feel good about myself. I feel appreciated when I have a certain number. And so we all have a number of something. Some of it's a number of rewards. I've got these trophies. And so when we're getting you know, trophies, we feel like, wow, when I get that amount, when I get that degree, when I get that position, when I get that trophy, I feel good. But, you know, trophies come and go. And eventually somebody will come into your industry who will be better than you. Eventually. So you don't want to build your security on your number of trophies. Others of us build our identity on our number of savings. When my savings get to this much, when I get a certain number in my salary, that's when I'll be happy. And you'll get it and it won't fully satisfy because we cannot be satisfied with a name. Others of us were real risky. We actually define how good we feel about ourselves based on the number of times our kids obey. Now, we wouldn't say it out loud, but the truth is, if our kids had a certain number of obedient things they do, we feel like we're a good mom or dad. And then two days later, the number goes down, and I mean way down. And we don't feel as good about ourselves because we rooted our identity in a number of a temporal thing like our kids' obedience. And a number will not satisfy versus the name of, I'm in relationship with God And by his grace, he's chosen to be in a relationship with me. And that is secure. It's not based on what I do or don't do. It's based on what he did for me. So let's do it based on a number. You know, the number of people I love, the number of lovers I have. You get married, the number of times we've made love. Uh, Maybe you're trying to get that number down in your marriage. Maybe you're trying to get the number up in your marriage. Usually there's one one doing each way. And you say, we're finally going to get our marriage together when we get that number right. And as great as sex is, as great as making love is, there's never a number that's going to fully and completely satisfy you. Some of us have it in our quarterly results. We said, oh, my goodness, my quarterly results, that's how I feel good about myself. I've been going up, up, up. And, boy, there's a day you're like, man, I felt great when the numbers were here. And then 2008 hit. I was sort of not feeling so good. Oh, my numbers were here. Oh, now we're going through it. And here's the issue. You're always rooting your identity and your meaning into something that's so temperamental and so insecure. Others of us are helpers. Nothing wrong with being a helper, right? But in our helping other people, we actually define how valuable we are by how many times we save the day. We save the day in our company. We save the day in our family. And the reason we get caught into all these triangles in our family where so-and-so calls and did you hear what mom said? Did you hear what your cousin said? And you're always stuck in all this stuff. And, and you're wearing yourself out. And your husband's even said to you, or your wife said to you, why do you get involved in this stuff? This is wearing you out. You resent being in it, but you still take the phone calls. Why do you do it? Because you actually define your value to your family based on the number of times you save the day. And it is killing you. And if you don't believe me, ask your family who's around you. They see it killing you. Because you cannot find satisfaction by the number of times you save the day. Nothing wrong with saving the day. I like saving the day. But it cannot fully and finally satisfy. Many of us have defined our our worth based on our kids' grades. And I was a straight-A student, National Honor Society student, and I remember how anxious I would get when I got a horrible grade like a B-plus. A B plus. Is that what those look like? Oh, my goodness. And again, you took something valuable like education. Nothing wrong with that. 
And you made it an ultimate thing. And the number of A's, the number of scholarships, the number, the number, the number, and all that pressure and all that anxiety on you, and then you impose it on your kids, and you think that that number is going to satisfy. And there's just a pressure cooker. Turn that fan up, turn that fan up, turn that fan up. We're never going to be satisfied by a number. And other of us have the need to be needed. I have one of these. This is one of my, uh, you know, things I need to sort of realign myself to. The need to be needed. When lots of people say, we need you. Oh, wow. You feel so filled up. And they need you to volunteer here. And they need you to fix this. And they need you to be involved here. And your need to be needed. You feel good. The number of times people say they need you, you feel good. And you eventually get worn out turning that fan up. Because you're never going to be satisfied by a number. It's going to be a name. And lastly, it's not the number of promotions you have. Solomon said, I tried it. I stepped here and here and here. I got higher promotion-wise than anyone had ever been before. I was the king of an entire country. And I'm telling you, that number did not fully and finally satisfy. Now, Solomon's going to give us some more hints. But here's how this works. If you are not sure about Jesus or God or the Bible, I would just encourage you, try this stuff. Get as much of whatever you think is going to work. Get it. Go, go, go. And see if it fully satisfies. Keep searching. If you've searched this stuff out, usually what we do is we say, well, that didn't work. I'll switch to this. Well, keep trying. You're going to find none of this stuff, no matter how high the number it satisfies. And then you're going to come to a place you say, you know what? These are good things. I like these things. I appreciate these things in my life. But I need to anchor myself to something secure. And this is what the main message of the Bible is. When you're living in life with all of its ups and downs, God says that he in this heavenly realm offers grace. Not something you earn, but something that's given to you. He gives you a new identity. And so when you decide to follow Christ, you're saying, I'm putting my full identity in this eternal thing, this purpose he has for me, this plan he has for me, this worth he has for me. And this is how I define my value. This is how I define my worth. And it is secure. So one day my wife is mad at me and she's criticizing me. And if I define myself based on my wife being happy, I'd feel very low. And I'm very defensive. Oh, that's not really what happened. And in those moments, I remind myself, I am defined by what God did for me. And God told me that I'm broken. So when my wife brings something up, there's probably a percentage of it that's true because God had to die for some of the dumb things I did. And so I can stop being so defensive and say, well, tell me what I did again. And that grace allows you to bring out your gack, bring out your problems, and you become much more open because you're not talking about something that defines you. You're talking about something you did. And that difference makes all the difference in the world because you can be open to criticism when it's just something you did, not something that defines you. And this is why that freedom works when your value and worth and security is defined, not by why you, what you do or don't do, but by what he did. So I want to have a prayer as we conclude today. And maybe as you're looking at that, you're saying, well, I don't really understand that, Chad. That was way too fast, or I don't know how to apply that. I just encourage you to think about the question we ended with. Are you defining your sense of worth, satisfaction, happiness based on a number or a name? Is there something secure you could build your identity on that doesn't have the roller coaster effect of life? Solomon says there is. And over the next four weeks, we're going to dig deeper and deeper into how to find that number and how to find that name that can bring security in the midst of a very uncertain world. Let's pray. And maybe you want to pray with. Just an honest prayer might be, God, I'm willing to go on the search.
And maybe you're not familiar with the God or the Bible and you just want to say, God, I don't even know if prayer works. But I'm going to try. I want to try seeking you because I've tried seeking a lot of other stuff. Or maybe you have uh, considered yourself a Christian, but like Solomon, you started defining yourself by something besides his grace. And you want to say, God, I need to get back. God, I want to learn how to anchor myself in you and what you've done, not in me and what I've done. And Father, we just thank you for our gathering here today. We just ask you continue to work in our hearts. We ask you bring the kind of freedom, the kind of security, the lack of anxiety, the lack of twirling back and around that's happened in many of our lives, God, that we would find the kind of freedom that, that comes from your grace and that would flow it into our relationships. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us today. Uh, if you came prepared to give us some offering boxes on the way out. If you're new to the church, we'd love to say, hey, third door on your left is the hearth room. There's some volunteers there. We'd love to put a name with a face. Thanks for being here today.